You are listening to Pastor Mike Greiner of Harvest Community Church in Catanning, Pennsylvania. We pray that you will be challenged today as you listen to a sermon entitled, The Best is Yet to Come, recorded on May the 7th, 2017. For more information, check us out on the web at harvestpa.org. Let's join Pastor Mike as he preaches. When I was a young man, I, I lived in South Jersey. And I'd never been to South Jersey before, and I kind of uh, liked South Jersey. Didn't love it, but I liked it. But from there, I'd often drive, or sometimes drive, to North Jersey and even to New York City. And I made up my mind as a young man that I would never live anywhere close to New York City. Um, It it may be kind of interesting, but it was a big city. It was kind of just noisy, scary. Some people, you know what I mean? They don't even want to drive in big cities. and, and And then Northern New Jersey just was a hole. I thought, this is a horrible place to be with all these big, tall buildings. There's... There's nothing even worth living in in North Jersey. And uh, I, I remember saying, I'm never going to go to North Jersey. Do you know that that's the densest, the, the most densely populated place in America is North Jersey? You have cities like Elizabeth, New Jersey, and Newark, New Jersey, and Irvington, New Jersey, and Hoboken, New Jersey, and Patterson, New Jersey. And they are literally right on top of each other. And each one of them has like half a million people in them. I mean, it's, it's, it's just so crowded. And it's, and it's Jersey. You don't even get Broadway. I thought, I'm never going to live there. I'm never going to go there. never going to be there. Um, And then, after I got out of seminary at age 33, many years later, the only church that would even think of letting me preach was First Baptist Church of Union, New Jersey, which just happens to be right on the border of Irvington and Elizabeth and Newark and just a few miles from New York City. And everything I thought I would hate about city life, and at first, I would tell you, I was paranoid for for a year. There's people always walking by the house because there's people everywhere, and... But after about seven years, there are many things I came to love and like about that culture. And, and I realized people really are people. They're the same. They're not nice in New Jersey. But it, they're not not nice because they're nice, they're meaner than you. They're not nice because there's too many people around. And if you have to stop and say hi to everybody, right? Do you guys remember, uh, I, you know, that commercial, the Bud Light? Hey, what's up, what's up, what's up? And the guy goes comes from Texas, and he goes, well, I'm fine, how are you? And they're like, why is he talking to us? That's what it's like in New Jersey. (laughs) You know, they don't want to talk to you. You walk by people, you almost touch them, they don't want to talk to you. But after a while, you don't want to talk to them. Why? Because a thousand people are going to do that to you today. You don't have time. They have a lot of good food in New Jersey. Probably the best food in the world is in New Jersey, because all the food of the world is in New Jersey. And they have all those wild accents you hear on movies. All of them are all, all right there. And, and I thought, you guys are faking it. You don't really talk like this, do you? And they really do talk funny. Oh, you should have heard her. You know, they, they all talk really like that. And you have people talk like mobsters, and, 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 and you have all the nations are there. And then New York City is really not that scary of a place. After you go in a few times, it's kind of fun to, I love, I, I, I love driving in New York City. Love fighting with the cabs. I I love the way people in North Jersey drive. I don't think anyone else drives as well. And, uh, and I mean that. Um, so now when I watch TV shows, and they're happening in New York or North Jersey, I feel right at home. I love it. Like if you're around, for us, if you see a movie that's made in Pittsburgh, which is like half the movies these days, have you noticed? You're like, hey, I know that place. Hey, I know that place. You can almost feel like you're there. For me, if I see a New York movie, I'm always excited. Or, or something happened in, in New Jersey. Why did I talk about all that? Because I want to lay a principle in your mind for when you read the Gospels that I want it to sink deep. 
And that is you and I have to remember it. We're not reading myth. We're not, we're not, because most of the time if you see John or James or Peter or Andrew, they're a statue or they're in stained glass. You know, it's really hard to think of someone realistically when they're stuck in stained glass. I mean, that's a pretty impressive person. Or if they're a statue on Notre Dame, right? You, but the Gospels are real stories told by real people of real happenings. And, and you've got to get in the habit of reading. As we're going through Mark, I hope you're reading the Gospel of Mark on your own. You've got to get in the handle, the habit, excuse me, uh, as one of my old professors once told me, of putting on their sandals, of putting on their robes, walking around with them, and realizing these are just people. So you can feel as familiar with them as you could with people from your hometown. And so I want us to do that with our text today. We're in Mark chapter 1, verse 29 to 39, but I want us to do that all the way through Mark, okay? We're just going to put on our sandals. Uh, some of you can go barefoot. Maybe you say, well, I'm going to act like I'm a poverty-stricken person. I don't even have sandals. Fine, that can be you. Uh, so some of you say, well, I'll be rich. Okay, you put on some kind of purple, and you walk around through there. But we're all going to act like we're right there, okay? So Mark 1, 29 to 39, let's put their sandals on. Let's, let's just see what they see. Let's take Jesus off the stained glass window and put him right there on earth with us because that's what he did. It's funny, if you look at paintings and pictures of Jesus, people, well, well, well I was going to say something people say, but I'm not going to say that. I'm going to say something I say. Have you ever noticed that Jesus always wears white and everybody else is wearing brown? Why is that? Okay, Jesus did not have a white wardrobe and the rest had brown wardrobes. It's silly. Mary's always got the blue and white thing going. She was a Penn State fan. I don't know why. That's also silly. Not her being a Penn State fan. Of course she is. All of heaven is. But they didn't necessarily dress like that. Who were they really? What's it like to get up in the morning in the first century as a Jew occupied by Romans with work to do? Mark 1 Let's jump into 29. Immediately, he left the synagogue. We're starting in with Lem leaving the synagogue. Last sermons, last week, Pastor Fred did a good job of presenting what happened last week. And that, that was, it was a Saturday, which, which is like their, our Sunday. To a Jew, Saturday is, is your worship day. And that's the day they went to synagogue. And it, it lasts from Friday when the sun goes down till Saturday when the sun goes down. So immediately, they, he left the synagogue. He was, what was he doing there? He was teaching. And then he started to heal and do all kinds of cool things too. It was the best day at church ever in that city in Capernaum. I'm like, whoa, you'll know. There were people who slept in that day. You know, they're like, they, they went to play golf or something. They, they cheated. I'm going to do the lawn. I've stayed up too late. Boy, they're going to be upset they missed that day at church because Jesus showed up and he started casting out demons and healing folks. It was awesome. But it's after church. What are you going to do? Got to go to King's or something, get something to eat, right? So immediately he left the synagogue and he entered the house of Simon and Andrew and James and John. These four guys go together a lot. Simon is Peter, right? That's the, his, his birth name is Simon. Jesus changed his name to Peter. Jesus is cool like that. He gives you nicknames. Like I think if he met me, he'd say, I'm going to call you Champ. <laughs> so, hey, Champ. He does. Later on, we'll see. He's going to change John and James' name to Sons of Thunder which is really, I think, cool. And I don't know why they get that name. But he would change Simon's name to Peter. And, but, so they go to the house of Simon and Andrew. Simon and Andrew are brothers. They're fishermen. 
And John and James are brothers and also fishermen, but not brothers of Simon and Andrew. But they all live in the same village. So what do you think they're going to do when they get to the house? I'm thinking eat. Right? So they're all, they're, they're cruising. Uh, the synagogue, really, the synagogues are important. They're the model of the early church. Throughout Christian history, the church has become all kinds of elaborate things. But the churches, uh, the very first churches were modeled off the synagogue. Synagogues are not the temple. And if you don't know what the temple is, study up. You'll find out it's a big, important place built in a certain way with certain holy spots where they kill animals and priests go and they do this and they do that. And it's the most important place. It's, 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 like, it's like the Vatican is to the, to the Catholics. Synagogue's not that. Synagogue is any, as long as you've got 10 male Jews get together in a gathering and they can bring their ladies, you have a synagogue. It's a gathering of people. And after a while, they build a building. And they go there Every week, and they hear teaching, and uh, they, they worship God, and they read the Bible. Sounds very similar to the way we do church today, because the early church was very simple like that, too. It had elders, and they were local, and locally ruled, so it was much like harvest, really, because harvest is ruled in a very simple, local way, with elders and whatnot. So they just left this local gathering where Jesus was teaching and doing other cool things, and they go to Simon's place. What happens when they get there? Well, now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. Now, what is Simon's mother-in-law doing in his house? You know, we we Americans are so wealthy that we're relationally poverty-stricken. You ever think of that? Women who have babies will tell you because they're alone in the house with babies. They normally don't have their sisters, their cousins, their aunts, their mother, their grandmother around. They, they may be even in the same town, but they got to get in their car and come do something. But they got their own house to take care of. We are so wealthy, we're relationally poor. It is the habit of mankind to live with your family throughout all history until wealth hits you. Then you can have your own place. She lived there because where else are you going to live? You know, the Bible doesn't have 401Ks, retirement, Social Security. Retirement, when you were old, if you didn't have enough, was family. I tell my kids that. I tell my kids that. I tell them right out. I am not worried about my old age. Work hard. Make money. Have a place to live. Get a guest room. If I'm drooling in a cup, I better have a place to sleep. So that's why she's there. She lives there. It's her house. She was ill. And immediately they told him about her. Now Jesus was just at the synagogue healing everybody. Goes to Simon's house. Simon's going to say, hey, guess what? My mother-in-law's ill. You know, if he was like, some people he'd say, just leave her be. (laughs) But that was a joke. Forget it. So it says, and he came and he took her by the hand and he lifted her up. And her fever left her. He just says, get up. She gets up, and her fever's gone, and she began to serve them. Now, that's not an unusual thing. That's not unusual. Why wouldn't she serve them? If you were to come to my house on a Sunday after church, um, you would find that my wife is normally very concerned about serving everyone in the house. Right? It's a feminist nightmare. My wife worries more about everyone who walks in the house. When lunch starts, what we're going to eat, I'm like... We got chips. Let them sit down and watch the game. <laughs> but you can't stop a woman from being house proud. I don't care what they teach them in college. 
She got up and she's thinking, these people are in my house. They got to eat. I'm sure they did it every Saturday. That evening at sundown. Now notice it's sundown already. Mark gives us very little details. Both Fred and I have pointed that out the last two sermons. It's never going to change. What happened all afternoon? I don't know. They ate. They kicked their feet up. They talked. They yacked. Maybe they took a nap. I don't know. I don't know. It was a busy day. I got a feeling Jesus probably didn't get much rest. Someone was always interested in hearing what he had to say. But the day's gone now. The sun has gone down, which means it's no longer the Sabbath. For us, it's the same day. Sun goes down. It's a different day. And look what happens at sundown. They brought to him all who were sick and oppressed by demons. Everybody else's Sabbath was over too. They were finished with their Sabbath lunches too. And maybe some, some who had to come a long way <laughs> could come now because it's no longer the Sabbath. It's not a day of rest. The sun goes down and they all figure out where Jesus is staying. It's not hard to figure out. They watched him walk there. Some of them, word got out. Everyone knew he was healing everybody at the synagogue. People knew he healed this mother-in-law. They're thinking, I'm... I was just talking before the service with a brother of ours who is not, who's got a, a, a problem that's causing him some pain. And the doctors, of course, are saying, Ooh. but some doctors get it right, and maybe they will. But wouldn't it be great if I could say to him, hey, man, I, Jesus is over at Simon's house. Let's go over there and let him take care of business. It's what you do. It's what I do. Isn't, it, isn't that it? It would save a lot. I mean, it would put a lot of people out of business. I mean, pharmaceutical industry probably would hate Jesus, but... They filled the house. They brought all who were sick and oppressed by demons. How many is that? We don't really know. But it says here the whole city was gathered together at the door. <laughs> Which means, everyone. I'm thinking they didn't all come in. So Jesus had to come out. He says, oh, how you going doing? We're sick. You know, help us out. And so he had a healing service right there. And it said he healed many who were sick with various diseases. And he cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak. Because apparently demons, if they possess a person, can speak through the person. And he wouldn't permit them to speak because they knew him. Fred covered this well last week. And you might be saying, well, I wasn't here last week. Sorry. Just as a a little fill-in. In the spiritual realm, God made the demons before they were demons, before they rebelled. They know who Jesus is. They see him as the enemy. And apparently, Jesus doesn't want his fame spread out yet. He doesn't want people to know yet every, that he's the son of God. Why? I don't know. Some scholars think it's crowd management. It's not going to work, as we see already. Some scholars think he had to unroll things. You know what I say? If Jesus doesn't want people to, to say it now, that's his business. What do I care? But he would tell the demons, shut up. And the demons would, shut up. Now, Jesus' fame in this little town was going to grow to unimaginable, not unimaginable, you can imagine, let's say unmanageable crowds. That's a better word. He wouldn't be able to go into cities anymore very soon. Um, Now, I just want to take a note and talk a little bit about that whole demonic thing. Because people are interested in demonic things. And it matters. There is, Christians believe in demons and angels. Unseen things. And I am not ashamed to say it. Uh, if you believe that, that the world is something besides just material, 
But if you think it's just material, then you have already made the existential leap that you know the unknowable. <laughs> that you can, uh, that's kind of philosophical, isn't it? Let me put it another way. If you think there's nothing in the universe except for what you can see and touch, how do you know? Well, because I only see and touch this. So only things exist are things you can see and touch. Yes. Oh, okay. So wouldn't that be a leap of faith? You don't have proof of that. But most people know, in fact, everyone knows in their gut, even atheists, that somebody put it all right here. And in that spiritual realm are demons and angels. And yep, we believe in them. And many are fascinated with the demonic activity especially because so much seemed to surround the ministry of Jesus. He was constantly casting out demons. Many say that these were mental illnesses. Again, stealing my thunder, um, Fred rightly pointed out that a mental illness doesn't say things like, you are the son of God. <laughs> mental, <laughs> you know, that's, that's not epilepsy there, right? Um, and, and, those, and, and don't ever, ever make the mistake of this. Don't ever be a snob about modern times. There's no proof in the history of archaeology or history of mankind that there was ever a time when man was stupider than he is right now. That could be interpreted as man has never been stupider than now. And that might be true. But what I'm getting at is man has always been just as intelligent, intelligent as he always is. Well, what about the cave pavement? Writings. They only could paint like buffalo on the wall. They didn't seem too smart to me. Really? Really? How about, okay, you see buffalo, you paint buffalo, seems like people today, and you made a paint that lasts thousands of years. Seems like he's just as smart as I am. These people knew what madness was. They knew. Some wonder, well, if there's so many demon-possessed then, does that mean there are that many demonically-possessed people today? And I want to answer this with a lot of caution because a lot of people get sidetracked into what are often called deliverance ministries and the anti-demonic, and there's a demon behind everything and a demon in everything, and they're casting out demons out of everything. They write books about how to handle... There are... (laughs) There are books, um, there, are, there are people who will teach you that if you go and find a demon-possessed person and interview that demon, he can give you information from the netherworld, like his name. It's like, I'm Jim the Demon. Okay, Jim. <laughs> What's your job, Jim the Demon? Well, my job is to keep an eye on Freeport, Pennsylvania. Okay, Jim the Demon, who's over Indiana, Pennsylvania? Well, that would be Bill. Okay, Bill. You think I'm joking. There's so-called serious missiologists with professorial jobs in seminaries who believe this hogwash. Hogwash. You don't interview demons to find stuff out. That's blasphemy. That's blasphemy. <laughs> Mediums and witches and things. It, it, it doesn't, if, if a demon can tell you something, you shouldn't be asking them. There's only one spirit you should ever talk to, and it's the Holy Spirit. But there's people who get sidetracked, people who get afraid. Do I have demons in me? Uh, Christians, you cannot be demon-possessed. The Holy Spirit is, uh, uses all the rooms in the house. He won't let anyone in. Many people talk to demons, pray to demons. You say, no, they don't. Yeah, they do. 
Some of you people in here, I'm sure, have prayed to demons. You say, I did? Yeah, because you walked in and you say, in the name of Jesus, I cast you out, Satan. In the name of Jesus, I cast you out, spirit of anger. In the name of, you say, well, can't I do that? Well, who are you talking to? Demons? Well, how do you even know they're in the room? How do you know Satan's in the room? Satan can't be everywhere at once. Do you know the, the, the old saying, speak of the devil and he shall appear? Well, I ain't speaking of him. I don't want him around here. I'm pretty sure a lot of the lesser imps are the ones that concern themselves with me. <laughs> but I don't even know which ones they are. Walk around binding things. It's silliness. I even heard a preacher on the radio. I was like, man, I'm loving this sermon. In the middle of the sermon, he goes, you can talk to demons. You can tell them. I'm like, how do you even know they're there? You never see these kind of instructions in the Bible. You never see the kind of instructions in the Bible that weird Christians will come up with and put in books. You never see Paul telling you how to deal with demons like that. If someone is truly demon-possessed, you're just going to have to trust that the Holy Spirit will make it clear to whoever it needs to be clear in that moment. Why can we not assume that there was... Who controls the demons? God. (laughs) Do you notice the demons obey Jesus? He says, don't talk. They don't talk. He says, come out. They come out. Humans don't. Humans don't. The text right after this, Jesus heals a leper. He says, don't tell anyone who did this. The leper's out there going, hey, guess who healed me? (laughs) They're under complete control of God. So don't worry about possession. If If that unique situation happens, God will be there when needed. All demons are under the power of God. Satan is a gnat under the thumb of the Lord. You never have to worry about Satan creeping up and getting you. Well, doesn't the Bible say, watch out because he's a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour? Yes, it does. What it's saying to you is don't you give him ground that doesn't belong to him. Don't go running off into sin. He can't just get you unless God gets him. How do I know? 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, No temptation has overtaken you except that which is common to man, and God is faithful. He won't allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. He'll actually stop whatever's tempting you in the spiritual realm. He says, that's it. This person can't handle it anymore. That's all you get. Now, you might say, well, why does he let the demons tempt me at all? Answer is above my pay grade. And yours, it doesn't matter. But everything God does is good. So don't, when it comes to to the demonic, let me give you four truths to keep you on track. Ready? One, the gospel, the good news is the power over the demonic. The gospel is the power over the demonic. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Because the gospel brings the indwelling Holy Spirit to any who believe. And (laughs) Holy Spirit come, demon got to go. Second, Satan's number one weapon isn't all the weird stuff in the weird books 
It's lies. It's lies. It's lies. That's it. That's his number one weapon. He started with Eve, worked there, and he keeps on rolling. It's lies. And how do you combat lies? Know the truth. Neglect your Bible, you're more open to temptation. Read your Bible but don't believe what it says, you're more open to temptation. Because truth undoes lies. You should know the truth, it'll set you free. Third, all of Satan's attacks can be repelled by trusting Christ. Every single one. How do I know that? Because Paul says, take up the shield of faith, which is able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. So you're afraid of the devil? Stop. Trust God. And you have your shield. Faith is the victory that overcomes the world. Finally, God protects you from evil. He puts it in the Lord's Prayer. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The Bible never tells you to fear Satan. It says fear God. Fear the one who has the power to throw body and soul into hell, and that's God. So, okay, enough of that. That was a big detour. Let's come back to verse 35. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. Now, here we gotta put, we're putting our sandals on, so we're thinking through the time, and we're thinking, okay, yesterday he had a long Sabbath day. It was rest for everybody else, but he was there teaching in the synagogue. He was casting out demons. He was healing. He's walking over to Simon and Andrews. He thought he'd get some rest. Boom, boom, I got to heal mother-in-law. He heals mother-in-law, and then they eat and whatnot. Um, and then the next thing you know... Everybody's at the doorway, and when do they come? When the sun goes down and Sabbath ends. So starting when the sun goes down, he's got to get back to work with the entire city. How long is this going to take? I don't know. I think cities around Capernaum at that time could have had as many as 150,000, or no, 15,000. Forgive me. I looked this up to make sure I knew, and and now I have a zero problem. But but bigger than the towns we live in. So I think it's hyperbole. I don't think they were necessarily all there. But there's still a lot of people there. And he was up well past his bedtime. And notice what's he do? He rises early in the morning to sneak out. He's first one up. Is he tired? Yeah, he's human. He's tired. And he went to a desolate place. Simply a place where nobody was. Could have been a hundred yards in the backyard. <laughs> and there he prayed. Uh, I'm not going to try to make you feel guilty if you don't get up before everyone and pray. But I do think we should note our Lord's example. There's always time to pray. There's always time to pray. But then verse 36, so, so we see Simon and those who were with him search for him. They, first, they had to realize he wasn't there. So they wake up. The houses back then for the regular folks looked like a box, and everyone slept in the same room. If you had a little extra money, you might have a room on top of your house because the houses were flat, and that would be called your cataluma or your guest room, mistranslated inn in Luke, which is where we, by the way, get all that silliness about an innkeeper turning away the Lord's family, which never happened, um, because the guest room was full. But all the people slept in the same room. You didn't get your own room unless you were rich, and they weren't rich. So Simon and Andrew were there. Probably James and John went to their house, but you had the mother-in-law. You probably had some wives, some kids. There were all kinds of people asleep. Somehow Jesus 
Well, he is Jesus. He's probably quieter than a hobbit if he wants to be, and he just sneaks on out. Simon wakes up and goes, guest of honor is gone. I got to go find this guy. And those who were with him, it's probably Andrew. Did you lose Jesus? Why are you always yelling at me? You know, little brothers always get it. So they went and searched for him. We got to find him. I mean, the healing service was great last night. I think we could have another one. And they found him. They said, everyone's looking for you. Who's everyone? We don't even know. Everyone in the house? Definitely. Think of the mother-in-law. What is she thinking about when she gets up? What's she thinking about? Breakfast. That's what you think about when you get up, especially if you have guests. Breakfast. And, and she's wondering, well, does he need something? What do we do? Are other people coming? How do, how do we handle this? And Simon is, is the man of the house, apparently. I don't know. And, 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 and he's got a, where's Where's Jesus? So he goes looking for him. Lost house guest. Verse 38. And Jesus said to them, that's the he, let's go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that's why I came out. What? (laughs) Think of what a weird answer that would be in Simon and Andrew's ears right then. Should we go back and tell mom? Uh, uh, Should we eat first? Um, You know, there's a lot of good ministry going back in my hometown. We... And he went throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. So he's going to all the towns in northern Israel, doing the exact same thing he just did in Simon's hometown. Uh, Simon's hometown, Capernaum, would become his kind of home resting base when he was up north. But you notice Jesus had an agenda. He got up in the morning because he had something to do. He had an agenda. He said, let us go. Look at what it says in the word. Let us go to the next towns that I might preach there, for that is why I came out. I don't think he means that's why I came out of heaven, although it is why I came out of heaven. I think he's saying that's why I got up before the rest of you. It wasn't just to pray. He could have prayed in the house. He's like, I need to get away from those people. Because what we did there, we got to do in another town. And we got to do it in another town. And we got to do it in another town. There are a lot of towns around here. I only have three years till I get to the cross. We got things to do. He didn't say it that way, but he knows that. We haven't even touched southern Israel, where all the people are. He had an agenda. And at this moment, can I tell you, God has an agenda for your life too. And you don't have to know it. And it may, your life may change tomorrow in a way that never goes back. Trust. That, cause, and, I'm, and I'm thinking like Simon. I had an agenda. I get up in the morning. I'm going to help my wife because I don't want her getting mad at me if her mother doesn't have what she needs to cook supper and we take care of the guests. And I'm thinking household things. I go and find Jesus and he goes, we're going to go for a walk. Jesus leads his apostles on his agenda for their life. He doesn't even tell them what it is. Do you ever feel like that? God has an agenda for your life. And he will always lead the humble. You don't need any magic voices in your ears. You know, a man plans his steps, but the Lord directs them. So, anyway, that was a side note. Just for any of you who are feeling like, where's my future going? Don't worry about it. Just be faithful. Um, Let me finish this passage. Well, I already finished reading it. Let me finish examining it by asking and answering two questions. For the newcomers here, you think, good, he's almost done. He read the passage. 
you got another thing coming. <laughs> I'm going to ask and answer two questions. Uh, the first question is probably the longer one. Why did Jesus heal the people and cast out demons? That's my question. We just saw what happened. Why did he do it? Why did he heal people? And he healed everyone, apparently, that they brought to him. And he cast out the demons. Why did he do that? Now, you might think, well, that's a silly question. We're so used to Jesus doing that. It's, he's a nice guy, could be your answer. Well, he is a nice guy, but there is a better reason. Because he's still a nice guy. But he doesn't heal everybody now. Why was he doing that? I'm going to give you a biblical principle to always remember, especially... <laughs> just always remember this. I'm telling you, it'll help you with all questions of the miraculous. Ready? With a possible exception of the resurrection of Christ, teaching and preaching are always more important than miracles. It's just a principle of the Bible. It's a principle of the Bible. The teaching and the preaching, which was more important, the fire on the mountain or the Ten Commandments that came down? You could believe the miracle happened, but the ground swallowed you up if you didn't believe the words that came down. Teaching and preaching are always more important than the miracles. Look back at our text in verse 38. He said to them, let's go on to the next town that I may preach there also. Jesus is a preacher. That's why I came out. He didn't say... I came out to heal and cast out demons in all those towns. Will he heal and cast out demons in all those towns? Yes. As you read on, you see he does the exact same thing in all those towns. But that's not why he's doing it. He didn't say, there's a lot of sick people in all these other places. They need to be healed too. As a side note, when Christians think of doing ministry, Christians should always put the good news of Jesus Christ and its preaching First, should we feed the poor? Yes. Should we rescue the oppressed? Yes. We serve a compassionate God. We should stop human trafficking. We should, we should stand up for those who are getting pushed around. We should make sure the hungry have food and the naked have clothes whenever we can. We should start hospitals and clinics for the sick. We should go on medical missions. But if you go to people who don't have antibiotics and heal all the the pink eye in the village and fixed all the cleft palate. But you do not preach to them the gospel of Jesus Christ. You're just helping a person stay a little healthier before they get to hell. One of the discouraging things about one of our mission trips years ago from Harvest was we went and visited an organization we worked with that, that did a lot of good for the poor. But they had a rule in the country they were in not to preach the gospel because the Muslims didn't like it. Well, then what the heck were we doing there? And since when do we have to ask Muslims for permission to preach the gospel? All authority is given unto us. That, again, is a side note, but I think it, it comes back to us all the time. Oh, it's good to feed the poor. You can, if someone's hungry, you give them food. You don't necessarily have to preach the gospel to them. It's still a good deed. But in general, it's the message that matters before the good works and before miracles. Anyway, let me get back here. 
Jesus came to preach. Jesus came from heaven to earth to preach. I don't like people preaching at me. You're going to be in trouble because that's God's way of communicating what he wants you to know. Jesus actually took a very long trip to get here to preach to you. He came from heaven to earth. What are you here for? To preach. Not to paint pictures, sing songs, do miracles. Look back in Mark, the same book we had. If you go back to the first uh, chapter where we started out, he says, And after John the Baptist was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel. He came to proclaim the gospel, the good news, saying the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus went about proclaiming the, good, the gospel, telling people, repent and believe what I'm telling you. Look, people don't, some people say, if you show me God, I believe in him. That's a lie. If you say that, you're lying. You might not think you're lying, but I know you're lying because you have a faith issue. How do we know? Because when people see miracles, they don't change their belief system. It's the word that brings faith. I know all kinds of people tell me, oh, I don't believe in God. Start talking about ghosts. Oh, I believe in ghosts. Oh. <laughs> so you have no problem with the supernatural, do you? It's not. These people are watching Jesus do miracles, and many of them don't believe. The good news, the message that Jesus brings is going to grow because he is going to do a ministry and that's going to include dying on the cross for the sins of the world. When God becomes man and he is without sin, he came to substitute himself and pay the price for our sins, not only so that you can be forgiven of sins, but that when he rose from the dead, you could be raised. He ascended to heaven, that where he is, there you may be also. He's coming again to fix everything. And those who believe in him are not just forgiven. They are sons and daughters of the living God. That's the good news. And I just told it to you. Now, if I can't pull off a miracle, it doesn't change the truth. You might say, well, I'd rather see a miracle. I don't have any. In order to answer the question I asked, why did Jesus heal and cast out demons? I'm going to correct myself and say it's probably better to ask is how does the healing ministry of Jesus fit into his primary mission of preaching? Do you follow? If his primary mission is to preach, why is he sidetracking himself with healing and casting out demons? We get some insight to this right from the Gospel of John where it says this. Jesus was saying to some who were hating on him. He had a lot of haters. Do you say of whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you're blaspheming? I'm jumping in without context. There were actually priests standing in front of Jesus, who's God in the flesh, saying, you're blaspheming. And he's saying, look, God sent me. Are you really going to say that I am blaspheming? Because I said I'm the Son of God? My identity as the Son of God makes you think I'm blaspheming? And then look what he says. If I'm not doing the works of my Father, then don't believe me. Don't believe me. If I don't live a perfect life in front of you, if I don't keep the law in front of you, if I don't do things God does, like what? Like heal. But if I do do them, even if you don't believe me, believe the works. He's saying even if you're struggling with believing a man can be God, Don't be so hard-hearted that you can't even believe your own eyes. Believe the works that you may know and understand 
that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. So what he's saying is this. He does the works, these miracles, in order to show that his identity of the Son of God can be relied upon. I'm telling you I'm the Son of God and I'm proving it. That way you can know all his words are true. But why? That's half our question answer. But why healing and casting out demons? There's a lot of ways you could show your God. There are a lot of ways. Invent a new fish. <laughs> Bring me a fish. Yeah, watch this. It has like eight arms. It starts telling jokes. If <laughs> you ever noticed all the miracles God did, C.S. Lewis pointed out, were things God already does that you just don't think about as miracles, even though they are. He multiplied the fish and bread. Who do you think multiplies wheat? You could take one piece of wheat. If you had one kernel of wheat and there was no wheat in the entire world, with that one kernel of wheat, you can cover the world with wheat. And you say, yeah, well, that's science. How's that science? Science only explains what it sees it doing. It's magic that one kernel of wheat can cover the world with wheat. That you let it die, you put it in the ground, and it grows this tall. That sunlight turns into that. <laughs> he multiplied all those fishes into the net. Well, who do you think fills the ocean with fish? The virgin birth. Who do you think? Who do you think takes care of, of the formation of DNA? He does things consistent with God's godness. And God loves people. And he's compassionate to people. So he heals them. He could paint rainbows in the sky. I'll show you I'm God. Watch this. There's rainbows all over the place. Unicorns. I mean, Moses showed he was a prophet from God by doing miracles, but nothing like this. Elijah brought fire from heaven, but nothing like this. Jesus could show his power in a million ways, a quadrillion ways. He invented quadrillion as a number. Healing and casting out demons display the reality of the coming kingdom of God, and that's why he did it. In other words, here is the king, and he's saying, the kingdom of God is at hand. Let me show you how you know the kingdom of God is at hand. The biggest problem mankind has is that he's sick. He's sick because he's a sinner and he's dying. And I'm telling you something, when my kingdom comes, there'll be none of this sickness. Let me show you. Healed, healed, healed. There'll be no demonic power in my kingdom. Gone, gone, gone. I know that leads to kind of a question. Because remember, everyone he healed is dead. They're dead. It didn't last. (laughs) Mother-in-law, it didn't stick. (laughs) And it caused people to say, well, why doesn't God bring his kingdom fully now? End all sickness and evil now. I'm glad that the people who prayed that back in the 1600s and the 1700s or during the plague that he didn't do it because I wouldn't exist. Peter tells us in 2 Peter 3, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will pass away with a roar, and heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done will be exposed. The day will come when this wicked, the wickedness is put to death. <laughs> The day will come when sickness and evil are done away with. 
when weakness is done away with. Weakness of mind, of emotion, of body, of death. Because it's all death. And all evil temptation. Did not Daniel teach us in the Old Testament? And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. There's some people who say, well, the Jews didn't even believe in the resurrection. Why do people believe such stupid things that so-called scholars say? There it is in Daniel. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. Some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. The day is going to come when he rises the dead. And when I rise in my new body, I know you're thinking, how can you improve on what you've already got, Mike? I know. (laughs) But it's going to be better. And it can't get sick. I'll never take a pill. Does not John declare in the last book of the Bible, and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away and he who is seated on the throne and that's Jesus said, Behold, I am making all things new. He said, Write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. When Jesus says, Write it down, write it down. I'll give you something to write down that's not near as important. That's my words. Ready? The earth is filled with the goodness of God. It's a good earth we live in. But it is flawed. Adam's race blew this thing by death and sin. All living creatures suffer under the judgment that comes from sin. But a new world is coming and a new kingdom where Jesus reigns. In that kingdom, there's none who are sick. There's none who die. There's none who weep. None who are tormented by demons demons or evil or fear. Jesus displayed the love of God and the miracles he chose to do. And we also displayed, follow this. I'm answering my question now. Why did he heal people and cast out demons if his primary job was to preach? One was it confirms who he is, but here it revealed the normal kingdom of God reality normal life will be no one is sick and there is no 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 evil the kingdom is not fully here yet a lot of people err in their theology by thinking if you if you believe hard enough you're going to get healed a lot of people are victimized by that lie god doesn't choose to just to, to let he just doesn't do that the same way i'm not saying that he won't heal if you ask. Every time you're healed, he did it. I mean, if, if your blood closes up a, 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 a scab, God is in everything. He holds everything together. He made it happen. One day it won't, and you'll go to the doctor and get a septic, and you'll die. And he could even miraculously heal you if he wants to for his purposes. But you need to accept it as the norm that you're going to croak. Things are going to break. Why? Because we do not live in the time of the full revelation of the kingdom of God. What time do we live in, Mike? Thanks for asking. We live in a time of gathering together citizens for the kingdom. See, the, king, the kingdom is here because Jesus reigns in my heart. Jesus reigns in your heart. 
We are undercover agents. We are definitely, you know, you think, why do, do nations, I right? think the Chinese are cracking down big time again on the Christians, and, and of course, you know, the, all the Muslims are always trying to kill all the Christians, and, and the communists definitely went after all the Christians in Russia, and, and uh, why? Because they think Christianity is subversive. They're absolutely right. It's subversive to every allegiance in your life. It's subversive to your parents. It's subversive to your spouse. It's subversive to your government. Because we're saying there's a king above you. So no matter what you say, even if I obey you, there's someone above you. And one day you're not going to matter in your leadership. What we're doing is we're going to this world and saying, want to join a different kingdom. And how do we do that? We bring the message of the gospel. And that leads to our number two question. How should we, this passage, change our lives today? By remembering, remembering and acting on three truths. One, the message is still the point. The message preached is still the point. God gives preachers still, and he tells you to preach still. Right? And you say, me? How am I going to tell people? How? Are you a Christian? You know? Well, how'd that happen? Remember when you weren't? It's real easy to tell somebody, say, I wasn't a Christian. Just before the service, I have a friend here. I gave a book. Bob Beckel's book. And and if you read this book, he's going to say, I wasn't a Christian. I was a drunk, and I did this. Then I heard the gospel, then I became a Christian, and now this. It's a simple three-part story that every Christian has. Tell a friend. Do you know what else you can do? Invite them to read the Bible. Christians can be so disheartening in how they're bored with Bible study. But I'll tell you what, you open a Bible with a person who doesn't know the Lord, very often they're so excited about the truths you show them, why not just read the Bible with them? Don't bang them over the head or try to convince them, let him do it. Easiest way is invite them to church. Look, you know what I want you to do this year? I want you to grow harvest by one person. That's it. How many of you never even think of that? Well, you're letting your friends live under the judgment of God. Did that send guilt on you? I'm sorry. But maybe maybe it should. I don't know. Urgency is what I'm looking for. We need to plant more campuses. We need to send more missionaries. And we need to pray the Lord of the harvest to send more workers because... Out of all the things I can do with my life and out of all the things you can dedicate your life to, none of them are going to last except that which is done for Jesus Christ. And you must be zealous for the gospel. And I think that is probably the one thing that the church in America lacks because we're rich and comfortable and we forget there's a better kingdom than this one. It's hard to convince. It's easy to convince suffering people. When I'm feeling depressed, I'm ready for heaven. If you have bad back pain, you're like, Lord, come quickly. But people who are fat and sassy and trying to figure out how they can add another boat to their camp, they don't seem to care about heaven that much. And you know what you're losing? It's called zeal. Zeal. Burning with a desire to increase the respect of the name of Jesus and his gospel all over the world. Oh, Paul had it. He lived for it in Romans. He says, I am eager to preach the gospel to you. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. That zeal is not reserved for him alone, my friend. It's for you. So where is it? Where is it? In your map, every time I get to write a map, it's going to say, who are you inviting to church? Most of you are going to ignore it every week. Because there's no zeal in you. 
The kingdom of God shall be preached, Jesus told us, to the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. You're sitting around worrying about who's got nukes. God's got nukes. He's nuking the whole stinking joint, including your house. Second, church is not just for worship times, but for all times and places. You notice Jesus and his boys, they didn't just save all the religious talk for when they're in synagogue. It went with them wherever they went. It should with you. If you never talk about God, the Bible, or the Son of God in your home, in your recreation, then your faith is either ill or dead. And your church, is, your church attendance is just your way of inoculating yourself from the truth so you don't catch it. Third, look to the hope of the day when his kingdom comes in all its fullness. No matter how good a year you're having, remember, this is nothing compared to what I'm going to have. No matter how bad a day or a year you're having, think it's only for a little while. Pain is only for a moment. Never doubt the victory. Never doubt the resurrection of the dead. There's a group of priests who did. They were called the Sadducees. They challenged Jesus. And listen to what he said to them. He said, regarding the fact that the dead rise again, you have, not re- have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the burning bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He's not a God of the dead. See, all three of those men were dead. He says, but of the living. And then he says to the Sadducees, the priests who knew their Bible, you are greatly mistaken. What beautiful words that the Son of God stands here and says to anyone who doubts the resurrection of the dead and eternal life, you, my friend, are greatly mistaken. The day will come when none of this will matter and you will stand before the Lord and say, the only things that matters did I give my all for him. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Harvest Community Church. We invite you to join us at any one of our four campuses located in Catanning, Petrolia Valley, Indiana, and Freeport. For more information, check us out on the web at harvestpa.org.